a pharmacy that wasn't locked down and didn't have a pharmacist. Eight random charts pulled of inpatients. None of those charts had a nursing plan. There was no ledger. There was no accurate payables. There was no nothing. Tales of an accidental hospital CEO. Coming up on the Payers and Providers Podcast. Hello, I'm Ron Schinkman of Payers and Providers. Today I begin offering to our readers something a little different, a regular podcast. The digital age has changed the rules of publishing. We put out hundreds of written editions of Payers and Providers over the past half dozen years without actually printing a single issue. And to add further texture to its writing, we're now going to complement it with audio. Our podcasts will be available at least twice a month. Sometimes they will serve to supplement reporting and material that appears in the editions of the publication. Sometimes they will delve into another topic altogether. I expect most of the podcast pieces will be about 10 to 20 minutes long, but there are no hard and fast rules. As a matter of fact, our first podcast will be significantly longer than that. That's primarily because the material is so compelling. Let's go to it now. Call Jerry Selig the Accidental Hospital CEO. He's based near Los Angeles, where his day job is another acronym, PCO. That's Patient Care Ombudsman for short. Selig can be appointed by a court whenever a hospital, nursing home, or medical group files for bankruptcy. His job is to ensure that any patients being treated by the bankrupt party or parties receive appropriate and ongoing care. Selig's traveled all over the western United States to serve as a PCO, but a gig he got last year took an unusual turn. While serving as ombudsman to the Nye Regional Medical Center in Tonopah, Nevada, Selig was appointed head of the whole hospital. He was in charge of day-to-day operations of a 44-bed facility that was left in chaos by its former top executive and owed the IRS, owed vendors, pretty much owed everybody. While Selig has had decades of experience working in the healthcare business, much of it has been as an entrepreneur. He hadn't worked a day as a hospital manager when one day he was put entirely in charge of one. I recently talked with him about his hospital C-suite odyssey at a Los Angeles restaurant. Jerry, welcome to the inaugural Payers and Providers podcast. It's an honor. You had never been in hospital management before at all, and all of a sudden you get this job running uh, a 44-bed hospital in uh, Nevada, is that correct? It was licensed for 44 beds. Uh, we, we licensed it, and it is now a 12-bed hospital in the final phases of um, getting its critical uh, access hospital status. How did this happen? How did you get this job? Tell me about that. I am appointed by the Office of the U.S. Trustee um, and approved by federal bankruptcy judges to monitor health care providers, large and small. I'm one of the individuals on a list that's division of the Justice Department in Washington called the Trustee's Office who are called upon when hospitals file bankruptcy or nursing homes file bankruptcy. And it's our job to monitor patient care, determine that the medical records are both properly stored, secure, and equally as important, available to those people who need it, and then report to the court if there's a decline in care uh, post the bankruptcy, 
as well as to report to the court if we believe there is the potential for a material compromise to care. Judges needed eyes and ears in the debtor, whether it's one hospital or multiple hospitals and nursing homes, it's someone to report on patient care, explain to them the rules and regulations, and most importantly, have a voice for the patients. What had happened is I, I take and my team takes, and that includes a, and a nurse, business partner who built a medical transcription hospital informatics company, a former assistant U.S. attorney who worked in the healthcare area, and uh, some other others on the team, person who's the world's expert on healthcare facilities, take a very active approach. So we believe that monitoring is about if there's a problem, try to fix the problem after you assess the problem. Don't go running to the court reporting that there's potential or a problem, but work in, work on behalf of the patients to fix the problem. When I was appointed to this case, January of 2014, when I first looked at the state and federal surveys, this was a hospital easily the worst I had seen in a long time. A pharmacy that wasn't locked down and didn't have a pharmacist. Eight random charts pulled of inpatients. None of those charts had a nurses plan, a nursing plan, and so on and so forth. I made the assessment that it was not in the best interest of the patients and the court, the two parties for whom I work, to go in and immediately close the place. So I reached out to the Nevada Royal uh, hospital partnership, cooperative of uh, 14 rural hospitals, and said, I'm, I'm going to go in and I need a strong clinical person. Introduced me to a guy, Charlie Hicks, who had been a hospital, rural hospital president, spent 25 years running rural hospitals, and we went in together. I made the determination that they needed immediate intervention to help a very young, very inexperienced nursing workforce as well as a very limited number of doctors and physician assistants and then I brought in my facilities guy Sean Drake and he started the process of trying to fix a place that should have been closed. Tell me though about the transition from becoming a PCO to essentially CEO. How did that happen? It, it's an interesting hospital as bad as it was. It had off and on over the 16 years under the ownership of this one doctor this is uh, Vincent Scotia. Vincent Scotia. It basically had cycles of being a model rural hospital. Probably six or seven or eight years ago, it was part of um, a rural medicine residency program. It trained many, many rural doctors, uh, some of whom returned after after I became took over. But there, there were many, many financial control problems and just lack of quality care. Doctors and nurses wouldn't work there because they didn't get paid. Literally, the most experienced nurse was 15 months out of nursing school. That was the director of nursing. As an aside, an important aside, uh, since it was mentioned in many court filings, she's also the girlfriend of Vincent Scotia. All the local nurses had left because of, um, one or two had been whistleblowers and he fired. And they were in the midst of litigation on that. And then others just quit and went to work elsewhere. So Scotia did not have access to any temporary nursing services, nor 
uh, was he able to hire anyone local, and he basically had a whole crew of recent nursing school graduates struggling through running a hospital that was seeing, oh, probably 10 patients a day in a clinic, and probably in a 24-hour period anywhere from 5 to 15 people in the emergency room. When we showed up and took a very honest voice in the community saying this is the hospital, this was needs to fix it, there were a group of uh, stakeholders in this hospital. I got involved because there were four or five stakeholders. The county, which at one time owned the hospital and sold it to Vincent Scotia, and for many years got good service. This, and is, this is Nye County. Right? Nye County. Okay. County, which needed the hospital from everything ranging from its employees, um, the jails, and public safety. Uh, because Tonopah is halfway on a two-lane highway between Reno, the only highway between Reno and Las Vegas. A million people go through Tonopah on that highway a year. So it needed a trauma center. It needed a place to take care of its workers and its uh, people in its jails. Round Mountain, the gold company, needed it, and they invested in it over the years. As recently as the year before the bankruptcy, they needed a hospital because they have a highly educated workforce, a good high school, which they have been building uh, in their town, a hospital and a nursing home are the three things that bring people to a town and keep them there. So they were heavily, heavily invested. They have 2,500 people living in their town. They probably have 500 children. If a kid gets sick, they want, first of all, a good clinic to take care of the kid, a place for families to go, where they don't have to drive four or five hours. And so a series of these people came to me and said, we're proposing a plan, including the lawyer for the hospital, the bankruptcy lawyer, where we will take over the hospital. We'll create an independent board, we being this, the mine, the software company had been screwed out of some money, the county, uh, and other powerful people. Now the hospital is a not-for-profit, but around it were all sorts of controlling equipment um, and other uh, LLCs. But we're going to Scotia, we're going to say, we want the checkbook, keep the checkbook. We want independent control of the hospital. You can stay on as a doctor. We think you're not a bad doctor. But we basically want Charlie Hicks and Jerry to run the hospital. Uh, one of them will serve on the board of directors. We'll put people on the board of directors. And Scotia agreed to it. Then, uh, this is all in March and April. And so it was a perfect solution, come out of bankruptcy. March and April last year. Uh, yeah, 14. Come out of bankruptcy, there was talk of revitalizing or revising or bringing back a district. There were still funds from the Yucca Mountain uh, Trust Funds. The county had in its possession to invest in healthcare and schools. An independent financial advisor was brought in to take over the checkbook. Scotia pretty much gave Hicks, my, my guy, independent consultant, a lot of say in how to make the hospital better. And then one day around the second or third week of April, on a Friday, Scotia walked into a Wells Fargo bank, took $85,000 of cash out of the bank. This is out of the hospital account, right? Yeah, out of the hospital account. And then in turn, fired his current board, but instead of replacing the board with people that the county, this crew of various parties had 
selected, he put another five people that no one knew onto the board. The attorneys for the county and the mine and the creditors committee immediately went to the U.S. trustee and said, we need to appoint a trustee. This is a case of stealing. County and the mine are very, very strong lawyers. They looked at other options, one of which was the appointment of a responsible officer. In effect, because the hospital was, the, the, the hospital, that which held the provider numbers and the licenses. A responsible officer is, is the legal equivalent of a CEO or president. Yeah, yeah, the CEO or, you know, people know the term debtor in possession. And um, they determined that they, if they had the support, and they had the support of everybody, including the hospital's bankruptcy lawyer, uh, they went to the judge and said, we want to appoint a responsible officer. They had convinced me to do it. And I decided to do it. I thought, so why did they approach you? I had been very active in, um, in helping fix the hospital, reporting honestly about the problems. And I had been advising them in, and been part of this working group, as they called it, the people who were going to take over the hospital. There's not a big pool of ready and able rural hospitals. I had been monitoring four other rural hospitals. I would written on it. And uh, I think there was such a train wreck that people looked more at someone they could trust, um, someone who had a great team of people who had been hospital administrators. Charlie Hicks had been one. Uh, and someone who would just sort of break the cycle and ask me to do it. You were appointed May 8th. May 8th, 2014, you, you were appointed essentially head of this hospital. You were, you've never done anything like this before. What is, what's running through your head? What are your thoughts going on? The first thing that came through my head was how little was there. How, how much cash was on hand? $16,000. We later found out that a million three of meaningful use money had been pocketed by Scotia. Another 450000 uh, of a meaningful use loan from the mines had been pocketed. We had cut a deal with uh, the software company that they uh, did the first round of installs before stage one meaningful use. And so he owed them 700000 when he got his meaningful use money. He didn't pay them. And what, what's the what's the payroll? How much is the payroll? Payroll interestly stayed the same. But, uh, but what what's the number? I mean, what, what is it to make your not? Every other week, it was around just under a hundred thousand dollars. So you get sixteen thousand dollars and a hundred thousand dollar payroll. Sixteen thousand dollars in the bank. There was no ledger. There was no receivables aging. There was no claims rejection log so it was looked at every day by the hospital. There was no accurate payables. I mean, there was no ledger. So if you don't have a ledger, you don't have payables, you don't have aging, you don't have receivables aging. There was no nothing. I mean, nothing. So we knew that money would come in to meet the next payroll, which we did. 16000 wasn't a true number because without a ledger, we, there was no opening cash. So the first thing I did was I was approached by um, the town manager who became the chairman of the board, and I said, I need skilled people. And so, well, you're lucky. Uh, there's a woman who has been the CFO here 25 years ago when it was service social. 
And then she went off and consulted around the country, possible administration. Her name's Kathy Clifford. She's uh, retired, and I, like everyone in town, she'll help out. So Kathy came in, very skilled CFO. I basically said there's two things you need to do, and one was create a ledger. I didn't see any way of bringing consultants in, whatever. In about three weeks, I discovered that 16,000 was actually 56. That was the only good news. And the other was to mentor the one person I didn't fire, which was a woman who was doing payables and receivables, a 26-year-old kid who was very skilled. And so, uh, so you came in and you fired a whole bunch of people. Right yes, I did. How many people altogether? 20 out of 50. You fired 40% of the staff. Yeah. Why? Why? Because you couldn't afford them or they were incompetent or was there another reason? Some were grossly incompetent. Some insiders for the Scotia regime were there to help us fail. And some I fired, including Scotia himself as a doctor. Two doctors and three physician assistants ultimately went by the wayside. Many people stayed. Many of the nurses stayed because there were no other choices. So now you hired, you went back and you hired a bunch of former employees, not only the CFO, but other employees as well. Tell me about that. Interestingly, there were probably, there were approximately eight to nine RNs in town that left. And then we went and the person who was, should have and could have and would have been the chief nursing officer is the daughter of the CFO and known Charlie Hicks over the years and basically we sat down with her and an older woman who had been in the hospital for 30 years and we said we're begging you come back and their first question was is he really gone and we said yes he's gone he's gone he's totally gone Convinced them to come back. That took about four or five weeks. They, did, they didn't want to work no, there knowing he was still around. Exactly. Or it was like a horror movie. There were probably five people in town, and then another four that had worked with somebody in Trump or Reno who we were able to bring in. We went from 100% travelers to 0% travelers. Then let's get to the doctors. So there was no doctors. The way that the hospital and the clinic, remember somewhere between 5 and 15 and 24-hour shift in the emergency room and somewhere between no one to 20 a day in a clinic in a separate building across the parking lot. Those were staffed in the last three years prior to my appointment by one MD and three physician assistants. Two lived in North Dakota and one lived in Utah. They would come in for two-week shifts, 24-hour shifts for 14 days straight. And what they would do is they would work in the clinic in the day, and they would often then do first call in the emergency rooms, and the PAs would work the clinic. So that was the staffing. That clearly didn't work. How were how were you received? I mean, was there some fear or trepidation when you showed up? People were so desperate to reinvent this hospital or to bring it back to the quality it once had. I've never seen people forgive and move on as rapidly as they did in the town. 
So I got enormous support from many people. And you were commuting from L.A. Uh, uh, yes. What I would do is I would come in two, three days. I would go back to Culver City, uh, say on Thursday afternoon. I would stay the weekend in Culver City, and then I would fly in on Monday, fly into Vegas, rent a car, drive up, and then stay 10 days. Stay how, many, how many miles from Vegas to Tonopah? Uh, 206 from the Vegas airport. So there was, if you would close this hospital, where would the nearest hospital be? 100 miles for trauma. So you didn't have, this hospital didn't have an ultrasound machine? Didn't have, yeah, well, it had one, uh, but we were always fighting with the Smithsonian because they wanted to pull it out. Uh, that, well, ultrasound's a whole other story. I'll get to that. What we did was, I, I haven't talked about the doctors, there was a, 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 a local doctor, a local kid, 35 years old, who was the chief of the emergency room at St. Mary's. He had approached me because when I, when I was appointed, because he was hoping to take over the hospital. And basically him, a guy who ultimately became the chief medical officer, Sean Devlin, who served as medical directors for a bunch of the emergency medical service teams and had worked in rurals and also a very successful uh, clinic doctor. And a guy who had been chief at St. Mary's who had trained at King here, Landing Andrews, all of these people basically, I called them and I said, we own this place. If you want to buy it or take it over, fine. But right now, I have no one to work a shift on June 1st. Coach is gone. And I'm really scared that he's going to go before. And so this group of three or four doctors really created their own informal co-op. And they basically figured out a way to, to get us, get someone to work a shift and we never missed a ship. So what they did was, we created an emergency room hospitalist program out of nothing. And I said that the motivation was, and I got a commitment from the county and the mines to put in place enough funding that we could pay at better than average rate, and that we would staff the emergency room, and that we would actively recruit for a physician and a, and a mid-level. PA or nurse practitioner, and so that the town would see there's a clinic with quality doctors, emergency room has quality doctors. I got lucky in that there was a retired OB-GYNE doc who had lived six months in the Philippines, six months in the United States, has a house in the area, and he agreed to come back and work the clinic for me. We convinced the physician assistants to stay, but they eventually left because when they were getting paid, because sometimes they pay them, uh, they were getting paid this phenomenal rate of you know 24/7 for 14 straight days. 24 times 50 pay 50 dollars an hour uh, plus their travel, 1,200 a day. Yeah, uh, times 14. So $17,000 for uh, yeah, sure. a couple of weeks. Yeah. So we, we got these doctors. 30% came because revenge is a dish best served cold. So, so, so they wanted to come in and basically save the hospital. Thumb their nose at yeah, social. So we're coming in to yeah. save what you screwed up. Yeah. yeah including okay. two or three that were suing him for not being paid. Then there were these doctors who 
were approached since you had the sort of elite of Reno tertiary medicine, but they would go to people and they'd say, I need a favor. Where we now own Tonopah, effectively. We're this guy, Jerry Seelig, and, um, and he's great to work for. And they would go to a woman who was the chief uh, at Renown, or the guy who was the chief of the VA, and they would say, you got to come to Tonopah for 48 hours, and you've got to work a ship. You will see stuff in the 24 hours that you haven't seen since you were a resident. So, and you will be thanked. I remember we had a medical staff meeting where one guy said, or Gail said, I work with now, I work, I see 60 people in 24 hours. No one thanks me. I work a shift in Tonopah, I see 15 people. Everyone thanks me. What were some of the other clinical changes that you made? Appropriate pharmacy. Uh, we brought back the pharmacist. Rural hospitals have a pharmacist. One. You said the pharmacy wasn't locked down. Were people stealing from it? No. It, it, there was a joke was that the laundry room and the kitchen were locked, but the pharmacy wasn't. We took over. Probably okay. true. But the pharmacy's locked down now, or was? Yeah. Uh, we brought in an MD lab director and a consulting uh, lab tech. There was a full-time lab, but it had crucial uh, supply shortages. No engine. 85 people presented in the emergency room, and they didn't have CBC reagent, and they didn't get a CBC test. Some additional number of people in the clinic and some in the emergency room, they had sent it out to Quest. I, I would presume Quest has some reagents on him. Yeah, they do, um, and uh, but that's a three-day turnaround, even though the contract is... No one reported it. Nothing. So he called the hospital in Perron. He, he walked in and said to the lab director, who was fired at the end of the day, what, what equipment do you have? Who else has this equipment? Because we're going to put someone in a car and drive to Bishop or Perron and pick up. And he said, well, you know, we burned everybody because we borrowed and never returned. I think they have it in Perron and, you know, Yarrington. Try says, well, I used to run Yarrington. I'm sure they'll take my, they'll uh, take my, um, my credit. They called Perron and said, uh, I'll come with a check or um, Jerry or my credit card. And we sent one of the lab techs down there, fired the guy. You, you sent your own credit card to buy the lab supplies. Yeah. Yeah. How, we were, how, how, how much was that? Well, no, we. Um, they laid lentils enough, so you can yeah, see But then we discovered, since we didn't have a payables agent, that it wasn't that we owed Fisher or Siemens. I mean, we were on credit hold and we had to play COD. But we also were on a payment plan for past bills. So even being able to go COD sometime wasn't enough money. And you also owed the IRS, too, like hundreds of thousands. 425,000. Say the least of your words. So we picked up a lot of hotel rooms and dinners and many bottles of Zinfandel. Okay. I mean, literally, there was no money in the house. And it was an investment by my firm and, um, and, and individuals. Second week, we had another uh, Sentinel Which was? I'm in the billing office, the bane of my existence. And I'm sitting around with the billers, encoders, billers. And they said, uh, have you been briefed on the ultrasounds? And they said, we have a big problem. And I said, what? They said, well, 
there's this doctor in California, and there's this traveling ultrasound guy that uses our equipment. And because the doctor wasn't paid pre and post the bankruptcy, he refused to read uh, like 90 uh, echocardiograms of ultrasound. I said, oh my God. And they said, well, let's get them read. And they said, well, no one will read them because the quality of work is good. And I said, okay. And they said, well, it gets worse. Do you not have a full-time ultrasound head? No, you have traveling, two things to travel. We have an MRI truck once a week. We have a ultrasound tech two days a week. Who obviously wasn't doing a good job. Or, no, 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 this or, guy came in once a week. But I, when I got the new equipment, I found an unbelievable ultrasound tech who was the chief of a radiology department in Vegas and, you know, worked weekends and phenomenal fun. And the ultrasounds were read by this guy in California. And they, I said, well, how does it get worse? And they said, well, here's the problem. The billing company went in to the electronic medical record pre there being a read or no read, and they bill for this. And ironically, we've been paid many times. So we committed fraud a hundred people out there. So so that had tests. So the hospital billed for about a hundred ultrasounds that were never performed. Never, no, no, they were performed, but they were never interpreted by a oh, physician. Okay. So, so how much money are we talking about here? You're talking about twenty-five to fifty dollars per interpretation, and then I think it was like another hundred bucks to do it. What we later did, thanks to my head of medical records, who was this crazy person who you never could say no to. Half the time she came to you with with things that made no sense. I mean, were inappropriate. I mean, were just not needed to pay attention to. But. All of the radiology stuff was read by a group out of Reno, a very fine group. They, they refused to, to read this because of the quality of the work. And, um, and they didn't read echocardiograms. So but she called the doctor, um, a marvelous doctor, and she said, um, you must read these, but they weren't properly done. Stress tests. There, there were also about 30 of those sitting around that weren't read. But here's the important thing. The important thing is he couldn't read them. And what he found was that an ultrasound tech and radiologist work as a team. And it's basically if you see a pathology or a problem, you pursue it. And it was just bad. The only redeeming factor was that we offered to the community, once the ultrasound came in, and the, uh, which did echocardiograms, also, is we offered anyone. We sent a letter to every patient, and we put ads in the paper, I think even on the local NPR station, and we said, come back, and people came back, and we found very little pathology that was, uh, we found, we got lucky. But the problem really is, Scotia was known for ordering tests that weren't necessary. So probably 50 of the 100 that weren't read shouldn't have been ordered anyway. But that's not a winning hand because once you obviously do a procedure, you're medically responsible for it. We ultimately, in my walk, read as best interpreted as best you can every 
every one of those auditions. And reached every person, and many of them came back and did, did something. The ultrasound is back in order, rumors and the testing is back in order, the lab is back in order, you, have a te you now have telemedicine, is that correct? Yes. With the other prime healthcare, the one more people know, Prim Ready Group bought about three years ago St. Mary's Hospital, yeah. one of the two tertiaries in Reno. End of February, a robot, state-of-the-art robot, was installed, and uh, the hospital is a beta site for telestroke and also interventional service. St. Mary's has a neurologist on staff who's done more telestroke intervention than anyone in the world. So is the robot on Nye County's premises? Yes. Yeah. Oh, in the emergency room. Really? Any, any other clinical improvement? Yeah, the neurologists and cardiologists coming out of St. Mary's on site two days a week, uh, two days a month. I had negotiated and they're in the final phases of trying to get a group out of Las Vegas to do orthopedic. So there's still many steps to go, creation of a district, and so on. But what was unique about Tonopah was the payer mix, number one. Approximately 75% of the people who walked in the door had insurance. Had insurance. Number two is we were able to recruit a um, Nevada born and bred MD, a woman who went back to medical school after being an MA, went to medical school after being an MA for 15 years, who trained at the Santa Rosa Sutter Kaiser Family Practice Program, which is a very strong rural medicine program, and came four days a week. So that's unique. Commercial payer mix. Number three is a very good emergency room many of whom were staffed by people out of big tertiary, so they knew everybody in Vegas and Reno. And number four is of an educated population with good insurance, which is to repeat. And so in a service area of about eight to 10,000 people, including some work accidents um, and very enlightened employers, you would see, say, 3,000 hip replacements. 10,000 whatevers. And those were pretty much equally divided over between Bishop, California, which ironically is the closest hospital and it's built up of, in a critical access hospital of a group of specialists. And we know in Las Vegas, um, people would travel, you know, or Carson City. The great thing for a specialist group what attracts us to renowned St. Mary's, Desert View, Mountain View in Vegas is the fact that the quality in the emergency room is as good as it gets. And if you're at St. Mary's or renowned, it may be someone you know. Uh, number two is you have a first-tier doctor um, in the clinic. And number three, you're going to get paid your professional fees. Now, if you throw in telemedicine and you throw in good paraprofessionals, it gets even better. Especially. So the, the hospital's back on its feet at this point. Yeah. No signal events. Fine. No, I, well, the hospital is clinic-wise 
about as good a hospital as you could find in, in the middle of nowhere. There are three things that surprised me. How fast people came back. How willing they were to, and, and, and maybe too fast. So the presence of this great clinic doctor, the presence of a first-year emergency room doctor, Landing Andrew. So people started to say, boy, I can take my asthmatic child here and know that they'll make it, they'll, if, if, you know, we can admit or observe the child, put them on an airplane, or they'll tell me to go back, you know, the 45 minutes to Hadley, Round Mountain. So huge trust. Just, it didn't happen overnight, but it happened. So if I was appointed on May 8th, I stayed the weekend of July 4th. I went to the big mine picnic. And that night, we saw two children with broken wrists from the mining town. Both of them fallen out bouncy things, you know. And to me, that was an indication uh, because the parents' choices were to get in a car, drive to Bishop, wait till the next day and drive to, you know, Vegas or Reno, or to come to this hospital. And they, that was the, one of the tips. There was a constant tipping point. So were the margins there? Is the hospital making money? Well, the well it, has positive it is, its losses are down. And the commitment from the county and the mines was get it to this place. So spend what it takes to get a medical staff that has separate ED and clinic doctors. Get you know spend whatever it takes to fix it. And those costs were enormous, enormous. How much, how much, how much do you think that cost? Probably a million dollars of hard costs. But, but overall, the hospital is in much better shape than when you found it. The overall, in much better shape, and the I don't know given. Um, the past sins, um, the bankruptcy requires payments to creditors and so on, that you can truly break even. And it was always contemplated, and it will occur in the next year, that um, a district is being re rebuilt and reinstated, and that district uh, will bring about a million dollars of additional tax revenue on top of it. A million dollar mill levy a year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a million dollars a year. So does the district exist right now? Yes. Or it just hasn't had a bill it, levy? It, it exists. It exists, but it hasn't been restate, reinstated. It it, the hospital's ownership, 25 years ago, it was a district. Mm -hmm. Then it went to the county, and then it went to uh, Scotia Energy. Would you repeat this experience again? Yes. Why? Well... Would I repeat it again? I would only repeat it again if I had patrons, you know, county mines, who were willing to immediately forgive past sins. Uh, when I first met the mine management, uh, Charlie or Jerry said to him, did you ever want to just drop him down a shaft and because he stole so much money from you? And they looked at us with tears in their eyes and said, it's not the money. It's a gold mine. It's we had no place to take injured workers. The kid, asthmatic four-year-old, parents faced the choice of driving or going and demanding the kid be put on a plane. With the, you know, we're trying to recruit a new high school principal. We're trying to bring a wife to be the head of HR, 
and the husband um, to be a crew chief, and they've got small children. They say, "Where's the school? Where's the hospital?" Mm-hmm. So that's why we didn't. We, we, you know, we didn't drop. Them, we didn't care about the money. The reason we dropped them down the mine was the you know this, this thing. So we can only go to a place where uh, Medicaid expansion state and this huge commitment of funds and funds and resources and political support so, we have. So the next time when you become an intentional hospital CEO as opposed to accidental, yes. those are the conditions that you need. Oh, the other thing is, it probably would be first. Well, I mean, that's leaving aside the fact that I'd like to be closer to a body of water. Other thing that I think uh, is uh, a really important address revenue cycle very quickly. I would come in with a revenue cycle solution. Jerry Selig stepped down from his position as responsible executive at Nye Regional Medical Center earlier this year. A couple of postscripts to the story. Vincent Scotia, the osteopath who previously owned Nye Regional Medical Center, agreed to pay $500,000 to settle a variety of legal claims against him. He is now practicing in Texas. Neither he nor his attorney could be reached for comment. And on August 21st, Nye Regional Medical Center closed its doors. Its CEO, Wayne Allen, said it could no longer continue to operate at a deficit. Its outpatient center closed earlier this month. The Payers and Providers podcast is a production of Payers and Providers Publishing, LLC. Music is by Steve Combs. Comments, questions, or suggestions? Please contact us by email at editor at payersandproviders.com, via Twitter at the handle payersproviders, or by phone at area code 323-547-4307.